Well, we are going to pick back up this morning. Uh, we t- took a few weeks for Palm Sunday and Easter. We pick back up today as we continue our study through the book of James. If you'll recall our series on the book of James, we've titled that Taking It to the Streets because James is all about the gospel with shoes on, living out our faith. Uh, We are certainly saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but once we are saved, we are going to show our faith. Uh, our salvation by our works. And James is all about that. It's all about what it looks like to live out our faith in the world that we live in. And the basis for our series, if you'll recall, just as a quick review, the basis of our series is this. Faith that is real works practically in a person's life. True faith is faith that works. Now, we pick up today in the second chapter of James, and when we look in the second chapter of James, we see uh, James really addresses an issue going on in the churches of this time. Um, How many of you remember the show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Some are old enough, some of our younger folks have no idea what that is, and Robin Leach was the host of that show. And that show was all about him going and exploring all of these famous people's houses and possessions. He was incredibly enamored with these folks, and we were too because we watched the show, right? Some of us at least. Uh, We've always kind of been enamored with wealthy, with the wealthy, with famous people, with, with folks who have achieved some sort of status. And I guess... That's okay on some level, but in our society, we tend to become obsessed with those things. We become uh, obsessed with people, and we idolize people that sometimes, many times, we shouldn't simply because they've achieved a level of wealth or of fame. The world is enamored with fame, and James, what we see, there's nothing new under the sun. James faced a very similar situation that he addresses in chapter 2 in this first century. Snobbery and exclusive, an exclusive attitude had inched their way into the church. That's the issue he's addressing here. Some members were giving obvious preferential treatment to the wealthier in the church, Uh, They were treating the wealthy guests well, and those who were not wealthy, they weren't treating so well. We see that. The temptation is hard to resist, um, you know, in a church. Churches need money, right? Uh, We have to fund the ministries, and the temptation is to treat those that are more wealthy with with better or preferential treatment. And that's, that's what's happening here, and that's what James is addressing. He gives us... Jesus' view of these attitudes, though. So we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and I have a brave soul, Tiffany McCauley, who has agreed to come and and recite this. Do you? Here we go. I got you right here. All right. No cheating on your phone now. (laughs) Well, I'll check. You you can. You you can. We'll we'll give you. We'll give you three cheats. No, I'm just kidding. You go ahead. All right. Okay. Oh, there's a lot of (laughs) y'all. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing 
a gold ring and fine clothes, and a man wearing old filthy clothes also comes into your meeting. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here, let me show you a good seat, but you say to the poor man or other man, um, you stand over there or sit at the f- sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Um, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the, and this should be the new loads of love verse, <laughs> has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to become rich in faith and inherit the kingdom to those promised uh, inherit the kingdom promised to those who love him. Um, Sorry. No, you're doing good. (laughs) You're doing good. Y'all think this is easy. It's not easy. At least I don't have to teach it. Okay. Um, But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into the court? Are they not the ones blaspheming the noble name of the one by whom you are called? I'm sorry. That's okay. Mine says indeed. Okay. If you really keep the royal law found in scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing good. For, okay. But if you show favor to, you know it until you're up here, I'm telling you. (laughs) And that's the truth, too. You can say it a million times. You you just, you keep going. You're doing good. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For anyone who keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one part is guilty of breaking it all. For the man who says, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you commit adultery and you do not commit murder, you are a lawbreaker. Am I good? Am I yep. doing good? Okay. Yep, yep. Yeah, and it's uh, true, too. You are. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that he chose those two. Uh, yeah. I, I think I would be more inclined. Anyway. Yep. Um, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom for judgment without mercy will be shown to those who have not been merciful for mercy, which y'all are going to show me, triumphs over judgment. Hey, great job. Great job. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've got to. You deserve no, a prize. No, you do. Y'all I owe listen. him because I told a bad joke. This, <laughs> pastor and, and, joke the other day. <laughs> no, so no, no, don't no. Don't tell pastor jokes or you'll owe Yeah, that's right. That's why she's doing this. She told a pastor joke at dinner the other night. But no, uh, listen, it, it is absolutely true. You can go do this over and over and over again. And when you get up in front, if you've never spoken publicly, when you get up in front of a group of people, it can, it, it's overwhelming. You did a great job. Thank now, you. I know for a fact Kirk likes peanut M&Ms, but you don't have to share these with him if you don't want to. Like peanut, butter. I like peanut butter. I'm sorry. Peanut butter. And you, y'all, can, y'all can share. You cannot, but that's great. If you'll just hand that microphone to Mandy. Y'all give her another hand. Great. And I know I still owe Dan some candy. He's the only one I hadn't hooked up with something. I, I'll hook you up, Dan. I promise. No, but the preferential treatment, what James, again, remember in James, he's trying to to get us, help us practice the Word of God and and all aspects of the Word of God. And this is certainly a part of this, and and he uses a, a test here. He talks about two different people. He uses a rich man who visits a church, 
and a poor man who visits the church and the people's response to that. Now, he, this is probably, we don't know for sure, but this is probably something he actually witnessed. Okay, he's using this as an example, but he probably saw what you just heard unfold in front of his eyes. And so he's responding to that. And here's the truth we need to remember. The way we behave toward people indicates what we really believe about God. And we're going to talk about what that means, but I believe that statement. We can say we love God, we can say we obey God, we can, we, we can uh, say all of these great things of what we believe about God, but if that doesn't translate into loving people, then the law is very clear. Jesus was very clear. Um, loving God and loving your neighbor are connected. Um, those are the two greatest commands. And so what we, how we treat others says a lot about what we believe about God. We cannot separate human relationships from our relationships to God. Let's look at 1 John 4.20. It says it pretty, pretty clear. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, in order to help us understand the reasons for these responses that we see for the rich person, the poor person, the response of the church. James tells us a few things here. First, he tells us that some churches are blinded by appearance. And listen, we all can fall into this trap, being blinded by appearance. He says, he tells, uh, told those people who were guilty of favoritism to stop. He said, do not show favoritism in verse 1. And that word favoritism meant to lift someone up or to show favoritism specifically based on that person's appearance. They were judging people by the clothes they were wearing, their appearance, and they were treating them well if they appeared well, if they appeared wealthy. Uh, We see the two visitors and some prejudiced greeters in the church. One guest had a gold ring or fine or dignified clothing. Um, He walked in, and he was treated very well. He got the royal treatment. On the other hand, we see someone who was dirty, had dirty or shabby clothes, so they tell them, you sit on the floor. You who have a gold ring, fine clothes, you've got to place a seat of honor. You who are a little dirty, you sit on the floor. That's the treatment of these two different individuals. They receive the Jewish people... Um, in this day, were incredibly big on recognition and honor. We see Jesus address that, right? Uh, they, they were big on recognizing those who were wealthy, those who had power. Uh, they would go to great lengths to get praise from each other. And, and the truth is, we have the same problem in many churches today. We tend to treat folks that we know well and those that we don't, uh, if, we, if they don't act like Christians, if they don't look like Christians, there's a temptation to not treat those individuals so well. Uh, and, the, and, and a lot, you know, every church has, has cliques to a certain degree. I mean, we form relationships and, you know, we, we form bonds and that's healthy and that's good. But what we have to guard against, and this happens in many churches, this is a very loving, a very welcoming church. I can't tell you how many times visitors will tell me how they were welcomed and loved on, and that is a wonderful thing. So I just I want to thank you for being welcoming. Uh, but it is something that we have to guard against because if we're not careful, 
we can grow so close that we become closed. And, and what happens is many times in churches, new Christians, they come to the Lord and they have a hard time getting in. They have a hard time fitting in. And we don't ever want that to happen here. It is a special thing to be able to welcome new people in and for those folks to feel welcomed into the church. But that's exactly what's happening here in in James chapter 2. They are excluding some people based on their appearance and they are welcoming those that they think that either they can get something from or, you know, because of their fame, because of their their money, their power, uh, they are giving them special treatment. Um, we have to guard against that. James 3.1. Uh, many believers in James, uh, you know, were trying to assume leadership, and so that's part of this too. In James chapter 3, verse 1, he addresses it. He says, Not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. I mean, there's an obvious uh, play for power here, and, and that's what some of these believers are craving, and they're flocking toward people they think that can get them that power. And even within the church, they're wanting positions of leadership. And James is saying, hey, you need to take that serious. Um, when you are in a position of authority within the church, you're held to a different standard. There's a stricter judgment for those in leadership. And uh, the sin they're committing here, plain and simple, is discrimination. It's what's happening. And they are, as a result, ignoring the people that Jesus came to preach to. In his own words, Luke 4.18, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus said, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed. Jesus was no respecter of persons. I mean, we, even his enemies, the Pharisees, recognized this about him. In Matthew twenty two sixteen, 16, they said, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Uh, Jesus was no respecter of persons. He, he didn't look at the outward appearance. He looked at the heart. Um, he saw past the outward appearance. I mean, you think about the people that followed him, the people that he reached. He wasn't impressed with riches. He wasn't impressed with social status. Had he been, he would have played to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, but he, he did not. He didn't, he didn't value that. He valued the heart, the person's heart. I mean, the poor widow gave all she had, which was just a very small amount And that was greater in his sight than the elaborate gifts of others. We see he sees potential in people's lives, which is a lesson for all of us. No matter who you are, your social background, what you have or don't have, God sees your potential. And he knows that if your heart is submitted to him, he can use you. I mean, and just an ordinary fisherman, he saw a guy named Simon who became Peter, he saw in him a rock, a leader that he could build his church on. In Matthew, a tax collector, you talk about people who were hated in this day. That was Matthew. He saw a guy who would write one of the books in the New Testament and would follow him faithfully. We see time and time again, Jesus sees these people. At the, at the woman at the well, an outcast of society, was going... At the time of day she was because none of the other women would be around her. 
because of her background, because of her history. In her, he saw an evangelist who would set her community on fire for him. He sees beyond the appearance of people, and he sees their heart. He sees not only what you are, but what he can make you, what you can become in him. And we see that time and time again. You know, we are prone to judge people by their past, not their future. When Saul, who later, of course, became the Apostle Paul, came to Christ, uh, the Jerusalem church, of course, they knew his history, they knew his background, and and hey, this is some sort of trick. He's going to try to get in here. He's pretending to be a follower of Christ, and he's going to kill us all, which they had good reason to believe that. Um, but they were judging his past instead of looking toward his future. And Barnabas had to step up and vouch for him, which he did, thankfully. And we see what God did through Paul. But we, we do that. And, and sometimes, like with Paul, there's good reason to judge someone's past or even their appearance. They've got a reputation. They've got a history. But we've got to be able to look past that. Jesus looks toward our future. He knows what he can make us. We're also prone to judge outward appearance rather than the inner attitude of the heart. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Even though, don't make a mistake here, he disapproved of their sin, but he was still a friend of sinners. And he came to save those who are lost, which is everyone, but he went to those who knew they couldn't help themselves, who, who were destitute, who were the lowest of society. And in addition, we tend to discriminate based on social status. But the truth is, favoritism is an indication of a heart that is at best in need of spiritual help and at worst, completely without grace. We've been shown so much grace by our Lord and Savior. And, and how we could ever withhold that from each other uh, is beyond me. Um, I've been guilty of it too, but we tend to do that. We tend to receive grace but have a hard time showing grace. Jesus himself, he was despised and rejected. He had no home. He grew up in poverty in the city of Nazareth, which was hated, by the way. If you were to see him, there was nothing about him, possessions physically, that would have um, made you in awe as a human being. I mean, yes, what he did is teaching, and obviously he was God in the flesh. But, I mean, just to look at him and where he came from, there was nothing incredibly special about that. Yet, he was the very glory of God, is the glory of God. And, And make no mistake... You know, he came as he did with intent and purpose and humility as a sacrifice. He will come again in victory and and defeat Satan. But the first time he came in humility. And so we see him as he is. The religious leaders of their day judged him. They were expecting something else. They were expecting a king that would come in power, which he will one day. Uh, But they rejected him. They judged him by human standards, and they rejected him. He had no degrees, no official approval, earthly approval for power, no wealth. His followers were a nondescript mob of tax collectors and fishermen. I mean, when you look at all of who surrounded him, his credentials from an earthly perspective, 
There wasn't much there, yet again, he was the glory of God. We tend to judge people on what we see outwardly rather than what's on the inside, but God sees the heart. We need to learn to look at everyone through the eyes of Jesus. That's the challenge. Uh, we need to be able to see people the same way that Jesus does. If, if, if someone comes through these doors, if they're a Christian, regardless of who they are, their background, we can accept them because they are a part of the family of God. If they're not a Christian, we can accept them because Jesus died for them just like he did you and me. Uh, we don't, just like Jesus, we don't justify sin, we don't excuse sin, but we see people through Jesus' eyes and we accept them on the basis of grace and hopefully learn to see what God can do through them and in them just as he sees. Jesus is the link of love between us and others regardless of who they are, regardless of the differences we may have with them. We cannot separate human relationships from our relationship to God. If we love God, we will love others. Now, I've used a similar illustration to this before. This is a little bit different, but I, I stole the wheel off of, of Timmy's bike this morning. I'll put it back. Um, if you look at a wheel, uh, a, a bicycle wheel especially, you see spokes, right? And the interesting thing about the spokes on a wheel is the closer they get to the center of the wheel, the closer the spokes get together, right? I mean, it's unavoidable. And, and there's, you know, design in this, it strengthens the wheel, all of these things, but there's no mistake, there's no arguing the fact that the closer the spokes get to the center, the closer they are together. And the same is true with us. The closer I am to the Lord, the closer I should be to the people of God. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those two things are inseparable. If we love God, we will love other people. And the closer I grow in my relationship to God, if I am growing in my relationship to God, the closer I'm going to grow to God's people. That's, that's just a natural result. It's one of the ways, the gospel with shoes on, it's one of the ways that we live out our faith each and every day. We, we love others, and we learn to see people the same way that God does. James is addressing a problem of discrimination of judging people based on the outward appearances. People, churches tend to be blinded by appearance, and James is saying don't do that. Next, James shows us that some churches are confused about spirituality. They're confused about spirituality. You know, maybe some discrimination, or some people discriminate because of a desire to improve their own social standing. That certainly happens uh, to persuade the rich to give, and that certainly happens. Um, some want to achieve a, a status within the church or outside the church. Some do it based on race, uh, creed. I mean, there, there are various reasons people discriminate both inside the church and outside the church. But God reminds us here that the financially poor may become spiritually rich. In verse 5, he says, he chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith. The emphasis here is on God's choosing. It is all about the grace of God. 
all about the grace of God. Grace implies God's sovereign choice over people who cannot earn and do not deserve God's favor. And that's all of us, by the way. We don't deserve God's favor. It is by his grace that we are saved, that we have anything. Uh, Jesus ignores race. He ignores social differences. James teaches that the grace of God makes the rich man poor and the poor man rich. It, It flips status. Everything is equal in the eyes of God in terms of social status because we cannot depend on material wealth. The rich man becomes poor if he doesn't have spiritual wealth. And and we know those who don't have material wealth know we can't depend on anything in this life, and so we are more likely to depend on God for everything that we need. The poor man becomes rich because he inherits a different kind of wealth, the riches of grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, Paul said, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So God promises the kingdom to those who love him, in verse 5, not to those who love the world and love wealth. Another truth, God saves us completely on the basis of the work of Christ on the cross, not because of anything that we are or anything that we have. You know, a lot of people look at James and say, James believes in a works-based salvation. No, no, he's very, very clear that he doesn't. He, he shows that our works prove our salvation. They show our salvation. But the truth of the gospel is that God saves us on the basis of Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection, his death, his burial, his resurrection. There's nothing that any of us have or nothing that we can become on our own that will make us acceptable to God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter your social status. When we all come to Christ, we're all equally sinners. Um, Rich, poor, everything in between. It's all level. It's all equal. Because of that... It's crazy to be partial, to show partiality. James also warns that some wealthy people may be guilty of dishonoring or oppressing. And he points this out. The rich evidently had dragged some of the poor into courts, which makes this whole thing crazy because some of the people who were showing the wealthy preferential treatment had been dragged into court by those wealthy people, had been discriminated against themselves. Because it was very easy to do that in this day and time. If you had wealth, you had power, and you could pretty much do what you wanted. And, And if you had enough money, and you wanted to take advantage of someone financially, then you could do that. And so when you think about the fact that these poor, some of which who had been mistreated by the wealthy, were showing preferential treatment to the wealthy within the church, it's a little mind boggling. But that's what's going on. That's what's happening. The doctrine of God's grace, if we really believe it, forces us to relate to people on the basis of God's grace, not on the basis of human status or merit. We we should relate to people the same way God. We should see them through God's eyes, but we should also relate to people the same way God relates to us, with grace. 
forgiving faults, being willing to look past weaknesses because we all have them. It's difficult to do, but that's what God does for us. We don't need to be confused about spirituality. Just because someone appears like they have it all together doesn't mean that they do spiritually. God sees the heart. Next, James shows us that some churches are lacking in fellowship. They were lacking in true fellowship. In contrast to the discrimination that we've talked about, we should love our neighbor. Jesus tells us that. And James reiterates that. Love your neighbor. If you do that, you will do well. Um, That word well is talking about having a pure motive. If we do this, we will combat any prejudice that kills churches and is in fact a sin, verse 8 or verse 9 tells us. But the question, who is my neighbor? That's the question. Uh, We see that being debated. Jesus responds to that. Evidently, that's a part of the question, the discussion here. Who is my neighbor? But that's really not about geography. That's about opportunity. The question, the important question is not who is my neighbor. The important question is to whom can I be a neighbor? Who can I love? Who can I show the grace of God to? Who is God placed or who is he going to place in my path today that I can show grace to? Or I can love or help. And and he talks about this being the royal law. Now, why is this the royal law? Well, for one thing, it was given by the king. God the Father gave it in the law. Jesus, God the Son, reaffirmed it in John chapter 13, verse 34. And when he spoke to his disciples, God the Spirit fills our hearts with God's love and expects us to share it with others. Paul says this in Romans 5, 5. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So, for one thing, it's the royal law because it came from the king, the king. Another reason is it rules all other laws. Look at Romans 10, or 13, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So, it rules all other laws. Um, you know, it's the, the, the whole law and the prophet, Jesus said, is summed up in love God and love your neighbor. I mean, it's all tied together with love. The third reason it's the royal law is that if you obey it, then you are royalty. Not that you're earning royalty. It's just we can't obey the law in our own strength. The only way we can obey the law is by the power of God, the Holy Spirit working in and through us. And so if we are obeying the law, it is by the power of God. And that's a sign that we are children of God. Again, James is all about faith in action, working out your faith. And the gospel with boots on. And so one of the signs that we are followers of Christ is that we are obeying the law. And in doing that, being a child of God means we are a child of the king. And so we are, by being related to the king, we are royalty. Not because of our own status, because of anything that we've done, but because we are a part of the family of God. And so we are royalty. We obey his law, not out of fear. We do have a healthy reverence for God, but we obey it out of love. He has loved us, and we love him, first and foremost. We love others, and so we obey God's law out of love. Now, you take any of the Ten Commandments, 
and, and look at them, and, and it's possible to break any of the Ten Commandments by showing favoritism. I mean, the first four deal with our relationship to God. So if we put anything or anyone above God, then we're going to break the Ten Commandments. The last six deal with our relationship with others. And you can't obey the last six if you don't love people, <laughs> if you don't love other people. And, and, and the, the reality is we don't need to break all of God's law to be guilty, right? I mean, if you break any law, you're guilty of the whole law. If you disobey one law, if I disobey one, not only am I guilty, period, I'm capable of disobeying all of them. Here's a truth to remember. It takes just one lie. Think about this. It takes one lie to make a liar, one adulterous act to make an adulterer, one theft to make a thief, one murder to make a murderer, and this last part's important, only one broken law to make a lawbreaker. If you've broken one of them, and the Bible tells us that if we, have, if we have hatred in our heart, then we're guilty of murder. I mean, any law, then you are a lawbreaker. Well, I'm mostly a good person, right? I mean, I treat people well. I try to be nice to others. I obey the law of the land. You know, I, I try to do well. Well, if I've told one lie, then I'm a lawbreaker. If, if, as a child, I stole a candy bar from a store, then guess what? I'm a thief. I'm a lawbreaker. Any broken law means that you're a sinner. I'm a sinner in God's eyes. And so I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. And, I, you know, I don't have to like a person or to agree with a person on everything. But if I have Christian love toward other people, then I will treat other people the same way God has treated me. We can disagree with people in love. We'll call sin what it is. We're not going to justify sin. Lifestyles, social, whatever. We we will disagree, but if we really love God, our motivation, even in disagreeing with those people, will be to see them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It will be motivated by love. If I have Christian love, I will treat others the same way God has treated me. And this is an act of the will, by the way. It's not an act of the emotion, of emotion, because sometimes I don't feel like loving people. Y'all ever feel that way? You know, if I talked last week about how much I love my life and I love my marriage, and I do. I have the greatest wife ever. Sorry, I'm partial. I do. Um, and we have a wonderful relationship, we have a wonderful family, but, you know, if she's completely honest, and if I'm completely honest, there have been days, probably this week, I'm recovering from surgery this week, so there have been days even this week where she probably didn't feel like loving me, <laughs> but she did, and she does well, and if you've been in a relationship for any length of time, that's one of the things I tell couples when I counsel them, there are going to be days where emotion is not enough, those warm fuzzies are not present, there will be days when you feel like killing that person, and don't take till death do us part in that way, okay? That's not <laughs> allowed, but there are those days, right? And, and that's the way relationships are. If you go based on emotion all of the time, there are going to be days where that's, that's not going to be enough, and that relationship will not last, and, and your service of others, if it's based on emotion, how you feel, 
that will not be enough or what, whatever feeling you get from that is not going to be enough. Only the love of Christ motivating us, propelling us, the joy that comes from pleasing God and treating others the same way he's treated us, that's the only thing that will be enough. We fulfill God's law out of love. You know, we only believe as much of the Bible as we practice. I mean, you practice, if you practice what you preach, you really believe what you preach. And none of us are perfect, but overall, our lives should be a consistent display of our faith. If we don't obey the command to love our neighbor as ourselves, then we will not do any good with the other commandments in the word of God. There's a reason Jesus connected those two commandments, to love God and love others. Our words are going to be judged. We're going to be judged in the end by what we've done. Our words are going to be judged. What we say to people, how we say it, how we treat others, our deeds will be judged. You know, we can't, we can't sin lightly and serve faithfully. I mean, how we treat others. Uh, God forgives us our sins but does not change their consequences. And if we behave in sinful ways toward others, that it, there's going to be consequences. And that includes in our relationship with God. Our attitudes are going to be judged. Did we show mercy or did we refuse to show mercy? Favoritism is evidence of an unmerciful spirit. And and that's, again, James, this is a huge problem James is addressing and one that we are all prone to if we're not careful. We will be judged by the law of freedom, verse 12 tells us. When we obey God's law, it frees us and enables us to walk in liberty. Psalm 119 verse 45 says, I will walk freely in an open place because I study your precepts. You know, liberty doesn't mean license. It's not license to do whatever I want. People think I'm free from sin, I can do whatever I want. No, liberty is not license. Liberty means the freedom to be all that I am intended to be in Jesus Christ. It is the freedom to experience his plan, to live out his plan for me the freedom to serve him, the freedom to please him, something I can't do when I'm lost in sin. It's not a license to do whatever I want. It's a license. It's liberty to do what he wants and what he wants for me because that's what is best. License is confinement. Liberty is fulfillment, fulfilling God's plan. To whom much is given, much is required. And this includes churches. Partiality has to go. James says. And one of the tests of the reality of our faith is how we treat other people. Can we pass the test? Well, part of that means that we have to have a proper view of who God is and who we are in light of who God is. Having a humble view of ourselves. Now, this illustration is not original to me. Most of my visuals are not. I usually get them from someone else. This one, I think Francis Chan did this. But, um, you know, I I read, I did some research about it, and and, uh, I tried to get all my facts straight. I think I have. But I have read that our Milky Way galaxy looks sort of like a pancake with a golf ball in it. So guess what the kids and I did last night? (laughs) We made a pancake. With a golf ball in it. Y'all can tell me if, what you think. <laughs> Pretty good, right? A pancake, if you look at a picture of the Milky Way galaxy, it does kind of look like this. Um, and so, in reading about 
our galaxy and how big it is compared to how small we are on earth, it's pretty astonishing. Now, I'm going to make sure I get my facts right because I know some of you know this better than I do. So how big, really, is our galaxy? Just one of many, by the way. It, some of you are already answering, all right, so you can test me, you can check me later. All right, it's really big. That's the short answer. It's huge. It's huge. Now, a light speed. Somebody tell me what light speed is. Huh? Somebody said it. Huh? You know it, Davis? It's the speed of light. Yeah, it's like 186,000 miles per second. I said per second. 186,000 miles per second. Now, what's a light year? Okay, it's light, traveling at light speed for an entire year. Have I got that right so far? Y'all checking me? So, a light year is traveling at 100. Let me just spell it out for you, okay? 186,000 miles per second for a whole year. Now, does anybody know the distance from one? This is our galaxy reduced in size. The distance from here to here, from one end of our galaxy to another. Anybody? All right, do you know, Davis? Okay. That's a really long time. Thank you very much. Okay, well, I actually have the number, but he is absolutely right. It is 100,000 light years around. I think it's more like 105. I don't know how we know that for sure. But, okay, think about that for a moment. 186,000 miles per second for 100,000 light years. Now, Earth is like... A few thousand, 100,000, I've got it written here, distance. Earth is only a few thousand miles in diameter, okay? So think about that. You're traveling at 186,000 miles per second. Earth, there's a little speck right here on the pancake. That's Earth, all right? So you're traveling 186,000 miles per second, and you fly by Earth at the speed of light. Would you even see it? You'd be going so fast, I mean, you'd be lucky just to catch, you wouldn't see it. Wouldn't be possible. Now, this, and the numbers changed, but there's estimated to be, right now, they're estimating somewhere around 200 billion galaxies. This is one, okay? There may be more, they don't know for sure. 200 billion galaxies. And we're just one little speck on one. And God says, hear this, God says, I have set my glory above the heavens. I have set my glory above the heavens. Now, how any of us can think in any way that we are big is beyond me. God says, you think what I created is big, wait until you see me. God is the creator There is none like him. 
What he created is extravagant. It is massive. It is beyond human comprehension. Yet his glory is above that. If we can ever wrap our minds around that truly, then we will have a proper view of ourselves. And we will have a proper view of others. So the, the, the takeaway, this isn't an easy passage to, to read through, all right? It's not an easy passage because we have to do sort of a self-evaluation because every one of us has been guilty of this in some way, at some point, at some time. But the question is, number one, how do I view others? Do I look at others the same way that Jesus sees them, the people in my life? Am I judging people on their outward appearance or am I judging them based on what they could be in Christ? Or am I just not judging them at all and trying to love them the same way that God does me? So what, number one, am I, am I looking at people the same way that Jesus does? And number two, and again, I've already told you, you church family do a great job at this, but something we always need to be asking ourselves is, how are we making the people that come in here off the streets feel? Do they feel loved? Do they feel valued? Do they experience the love and the grace of God? That grace is available to all who would turn to him in repentance. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of his glory. But by his grace, his sacrifice, we can be saved and set free from our sins. So let's just think about that as we go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the display of your glory that we see in creation. And that's just one of the many reminders that we have of your greatness, of your majesty, of your holiness. It's beyond our ability to comprehend who you are, your power, your strength, your glory. Yet, for reasons we don't truly understand, you chose to create us. And to love us with a special love, a perfect love. And then when we turned from you and turned to sin, you redeemed us. You paid the price for us to be free from sin. You make it possible for us to have a relationship with you. Jesus, through your death and your resurrection, if we accept the gift of salvation that you offer, we can be free from sin. And I I just pray that if there's somebody here today who hasn't experienced that grace, that they would come during this time of commitment and make that decision. Let me share with them how to do that. For the rest of us, Father, I pray that we would just allow your Holy Spirit to evaluate our hearts. How do we view others? Do we love others as you have loved us? Are we able to see others the way that you look at them with grace and mercy and love? I pray that we would. But we thank you for your grace, for your love, for using us at all. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for a time of commitment?